the district attorney of our county, also known as Multnomah County, resigned. Five months ahead of schedule. Well, he doesn't really resign until the end of July. And that's five months ahead of when his term was supposed to end. There was just an election for district attorney. A guy named Mike Schmidt won that. No, not the third baseman. He made the Hall of Fame for the Philadelphia Phillies. But someone with a track record and stated priority prior to the killing of George Floyd of reforming and transforming our public structures around criminal justice, around the attorney's office, around policing. And we are right now going to talk to Mike Schmidt. Mike, you there? Good morning, Jefferson. How are you doing this morning? Good, man. I'm doing well. When did you first learn that Rod Underhill was in fact stepping down and would not serve out his term? Uh, Monday morning, uh, Rod sent me a text and said, hey, you got time for a call? And uh, I got on the phone probably around 9 or 10 in the morning, and uh, and he let me know that he had taken the weekend to consider this moment uh, and this point in history and that he decided that uh, it was time for him to move on. What was your relationship prior to that phone call? Had he come out and supported your opponent? Did he stay neutral in that? How much interaction had y'all had? You know, Rod and I have known each other uh, for for a long time now, over a decade, because uh, I was in the office. Uh, he was one of my supervisors, and then I left in 2013. Uh, and he's been on my commission, the, the Criminal Justice Commission. He was appointed to that. So we've been working together for a long time. Uh, he did support my opponent in this election. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that always uh, creates a different level uh, of interaction. But, uh, you know, since uh, since I was elected, Rod called me uh, right afterwards to congratulate me and said he'd do whatever he can uh, in the transition. Of course, that was when he was intending to finish out his term uh, to December 31st. Um, but then when he called me again on Monday, um, again, just said, whatever, whatever I need, he will uh, he'll help to, to get me to make this as smooth as possible. What does transition planning look like in district attorney's office? How many new lawyers you bring in? How much planning is there? I have some idea of what it means for a governor's office. Uh, I've been involved in that process before. But what is it like? What do you have to do for a district attorney's office? Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> a couple days ago, I would have told you, well, Jefferson, I've got six months. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm going to get all these people together. Uh, you know, so it still is that. Uh, it's just uh, now I have six weeks to, to come in. And, and there's some big things uh, on the agenda that um, I'm going to have to come at right away. So you're looking, obviously, at the, at the protests. You're looking at a backlog of COVID-19 cases. Also, the court system will likely still not be uh, operating at, at full throttle on August 1st. I think that's probably pretty certain. Um, so there's just going to be a lot of challenges. The Multnomah DA's office is moving into a new courthouse. It's all kind of happening uh, at once. So I got to get right on top of that. So I'm putting together uh, at a faster pace um, a, a group of community leaders to, to help me and, and be a sounding board for some of those policies. But I intend to take still this next five uh, months once I get on the job to, to still be thoughtful and, and think about you know, on January 1st, what are the policies and how are they going to be implemented? Um, so I'm kind of looking at this as, you know, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to be in a better position to learn how the office is currently operating. 
what needs to, to be changed and, and things like that. Uh, and then still approach it after having a, a very thoughtful process with um, community members and community input like has never happened before in that office. Um, and, and then, you know, come at it that way. I had joked offline that only mildly joking that it might make sense to have somebody come in and clean out some trash, do a few things that might cost you some political capital that, that could help pave the way for a strong start. Sometimes you see that in organizations that have been having a tricky time as they put somebody in kind of interim basis, understanding that they're going to accept enough slings and arrows that they might not last. In fact, decidedly wouldn't last very long. What does it change? Other than just changing six months to six weeks, what does it change about what you're going to be able to have prepared or how does it change the landscape for you working on the culture in the DA's office? Yeah, it, it does change. Um, you know, I would have had uh, been on the outside, not entirely in and, and talking to people and then thinking about, you know, are there folks that I want to bring in on my team, uh, you know, with me uh, into this new uh, role? Uh, but, you know, that's I'm not going to have the time for that. Uh, fortunately, there are great uh, men and women already working in that office. Um, so I look forward to, to working with them, seeing how they work um, and getting to really know them and, and where they think, uh, what they think about. You know, I mean, I ran on a very uh, aggressive reform uh, platform and, and, you know, the office, the attorney's union didn't support that. And so, you know, I think I have to, to go in there and, and see, you know, what do they think about it? Is this uh, what they want to be, Is uh, work on these issues that the community uh, voted for? Um, and, you know, so far, uh, many of them have reached out to me and said that they're excited about it. So uh, I think also subsequent to the election, the moment that we're in has, um, you know, created a, a lot of attention that, you know what, maybe this really is the time for major reform. To uh, what is it going to take to impact the culture of the DA's office? And then I want to also ask a question that's relevant to the police and a listener's question. Before we get to that, even just the district attorney's office and thinking about that culture, a culture that supported your opponent that has for decades in this county essentially just supported the next anointed senior prosecutor to maintain the culture of the office. Uh, and right now there is more than a moment that is saying we've got to disrupt some of those cultures. How do you go about, maybe that's even a bigger question that I should try to bite off in one question, but how do you go about changing that culture? Because it ain't just, we, we've switched out police chiefs. We have, a, have switched out eight police chiefs in since 2010. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the culture of the Portland Police Bureau has changed eight times in the last 10 years. What do you got to do to impact that culture? Yeah. No, you're right. It, it, it's going to be... Uh, a learning experience uh, for for me, obviously, and for them as well. You know, when I was in that office, there were a lot of things that um, that I was never exposed to, uh, and that subsequently, after leaving, I was. So, for example, uh, going into prisons uh, and actually seeing where it is that we send people, going to the state hospital, seeing the services that are or are not provided to people when we send them down there for an aid and assist evaluation. I think some of it is just actually understanding what it is that we do when we sentence somebody. Um, so, you know, part of it, uh, my hope is to, is to be able to have some of those opportunities to, 
kind of what I experienced. Open uh, deputy DA's eyes. Their caseloads are huge. They're working all the time, and there's really not much time for reflection on, you know, how could we do this better? You know, that is, I think, a critical area um, that I need to try to create some space for. And my hope is that with given the exposure to some of these things um, and the opportunity to reflect and the invitation to, to reflect on these things and in this moment, um, you know, there are going to be some, some folks that are really ready to, to do things differently. And, and like I said, some of them have already reached out and, and have expressed as much. What is the power of the DA to swap out attorneys? We have some idea of what it takes to uh, swap out police officers. There is an attorney's union, but the rules might be different. This is not policing. This, these are lawyers. What does it take for you to make a change if you need to make a change? So, yeah, there's, there's a prosecuting attorney's union. Uh, the vast majority, except for the, the, chiefs, um, the chief deputies in the office and the, the first assistant, which is four out of approximately 70 attorneys in the office, are all in the union. Um, so, you know, they have uh, collective bargaining rights, uh, and so there's a process outlined in the, in the CBA and the collective bargaining agreement for doing that, um, and there's a grievance process. So, you know, it's, it's like any other um, unionized office. Uh, there's a, a process for, for going through and, and for cause if, if somebody's not, uh, you know, doing the, following the directives of the elected, uh, then you can go through that process. Um, but it is not a situation where uh, you can just go in and, and you know, do like what uh, Larry Krasner did in Philadelphia and just say, wholesale, I'm going to get rid of, you know, this many attorneys and bring in my people. Uh, it's, it's not like that. Um, so we're going we're gonna to work together, uh, and I'm excited for that. We actually got a question from a listener about Larry Krasner specifically. And so the difference in Philly, in Philly was they don't have a unionized uh, district attorney's office? I believe that's the case. I know that uh, when he came in, he, he let quite a few attorneys go. Are there any sort of at-will attorneys or pretty much anybody? What you'll have to do is, first of all, try to get everybody on board, recognizing that some people might in their hearts not be on board, and then either they'll stick half-heartedly or maybe you'll persuade them to get full-hearted, or you'll set a policy for the office, and if somebody doesn't follow the policy, you'll go through a, a removal process through the union to remove them. Do I have that correct? Are there any, are there any sort of political at-will appointees? Yeah, I mean, you really have that correct. There's really just the, the executive management team, the four attorneys at the top, and then there's some administrative uh, management team. Um, there are about 70 attorneys in the office and then about 130 uh, administrative staff. Um, and um, the vast majority of them are also in a different union and, and AFSCME. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's uh, similar on both sides, but there are the, the very top leadership that advises the DA. Um, so, yeah, for the most part, that's exactly right. Um, they're, most of the employees in the office are in the union, so that would be the process that we'd follow. And, you know, my, the only thing I'd add is, is my hope is if, you know, there are people that say, hey, this, this isn't what I signed up for, this is not um, the way that I want to continue to do my work, you know. Uh, that I can be helpful to them to, to help them uh, move on. There are a lot of um, other district attorney's offices around the state that would probably be very happy to have them. I am sure that the current historic level of protesting, the emitting of a collective yawp of Black Lives Matter around the country and even the world, it validates 
the decision of so many of your supporters to change direction in how we think about public safety manifest by electing a different kind of district attorney, district attorney who places reform, places public safety and criminal justice transformation at the top of the page. That said, over the last few weeks, even just speaking for myself, the, the idea of what might be possible or what might be deemed necessary in doing that kind of transformation has significantly shifted, right? And we saw it in the city council when there started out to be more modest discussion around reforms. Then it, they did something a little more significant, and there's still people, wait a minute, no, it could have been done more. Right now, that same sort of change in physics I'm seeing at the legislative level where the initial proposals were, well, it's, you know, one or two, maybe three things. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we can have an omnibus package of stuff. And that's really shifting. So to what degree is the current movement, is the current discussion in the country validating what you've been thinking and working on in your nonprofit work and your legal work and, uh, and in your campaign? To what degree does it validate it? And to what degree does it even challenge you to try to think bigger or more broadly or more deeply? <laughs> I, I like what you said about change in physics. It, it really does feel like, you know, gravity just either went away or, or got heavier, whatever it is. Um, everything is, has changed. And, you know, you're exactly right. You know, I ran on, on major reform. I talked about how we should end mandatory uh, minimum sentencing in, in Oregon ballot measure 11. I talked about the death penalty should be relegated to the dustbin of history, um, cash bail. We need to stop holding people in jails just because they don't have money and actually focus on public safety uh, because we know money is it discriminates against poor people first and foremost and, and disproportionately people of color uh, and and those at the time when I started out seemed like holy smokes that is a boy that's an aggressive agenda is it ever going to be possible and it was one of those things that's like I'm committed to working on these things well like you say now suddenly it feels not only is it possible what else can we do? Is there more that we can do at this moment? And we're talking about restructuring the way that we fund our criminal justice system and thinking about who responds to certain types of uh, calls and, and, and things going on in our community and, and how can we better get at the root causes of problems. So it's all consistent with what I ran on, but you're right. I mean, not only does it feel like some of the things that I, I was you know, campaigning for are suddenly very much within our reach that, that this is an opportunity to even um, think bigger. And uh, I, that's exciting. You know, that's a, it's an exciting and, and hopeful uh, time because, you know, I've been down in Salem for the last seven years or so. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the common wisdom, as you know, would be like, well, you can have one bill, one big bill, one big thing because yeah. it's going to suck all the energy out of the room and all the wind out, you know. And now suddenly, like you said, it's like, let's put together an omnibus package. Let's rethink our entire structural system. And so there's a lot of opportunity in there. Um, and I think there's also some challenge to, um, you know, set expectations that, you know, this is still very complicated change that we're talking about. And we need to be deliberative about it. And we need to really make sure that what I ran on, which was, look, what drives me is following the data and following the research. I care about public safety. I want to create safer communities. Now, if the conversation is we can do that by sending a mental health uh, service provider out to a mental health call instead of a police officer, that's fantastic. But I think we need to be very deliberative about that in our approach and make sure that we are guided by the, the science, the research, the data. What priorities do you think 
ought to get done, could get done. I almost want to set aside could get done, but ought to get done in a week. They're having a special session. Originally, there's been talk of a special session from the governor for a while, but it was supposed to be just focused on COVID-19 and the budget. Now it's going to be focused at least in significant part on the exact topics that we're talking about, about manifesting Black Lives Matter in beyond signs and protests and moral outcry and also into legislation. What does the legislature need to get done in a week? You know, I think obviously, first and foremost, it's police reform. Uh, I support the uh, the POC caucus uh, that put out their recommendations of legislation they'd like to see. One of the things that they are calling for is something that uh, I brought up in the campaign, and that is we need independent investigations of officer-involved shootings and major use of force cases, uh, and that the Oregon Department of Justice is the right uh, institution to take those on. Um, they are not uh, dependent on or locally tied to or interact on a daily basis with local law enforcement. Um, they can come in and, and give some objectivity and not feel any kind of undue pressure to, to make decisions or, or handle cases in a certain way. Uh, and I think the community needs that uh, assurances and objectivity at this moment. So I, I fully support the POC's caucus call for that. Um, you know, uh, Senator Lou Frederick has another bill uh, on um, how we do arbitration uh, with the union. That seems absolutely crucial uh, at this moment. So, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing coming out uh, are, are really great, and I hope that we can get those done. And the things that are more complicated, um, I would like to see the legislature, uh, you know, vocally support, for example, um, eliminating cash bail. That's a hard thing to do statutorily. There are constitutional provisions that we should at least look at because they could be implicated. Um, but we should have a commitment that that kind of a system that we know creates disparity, um, that they're going to come and take that back up in the long session, even though it's, it's a hard thing to do. So hopefully there'll be some, some commitments and head nods to things that they want to get done in the long, but some short things, some short uh, things that they can do right now. Let me ask about Measure 11. You brought up Measure 11. What do you think could be the appetite to make a move to transform that? You know, uh, we just went through uh, Measure 11 reform in the last session with the juvenile bill. And <laughs> as I said previously, the, the, the traditional wisdom is we just did that. You know, it's going to be six years before we're willing to take anything up like that again. Uh, but the world has changed, and I think it's changed not only in, in a way for people's appetite to rethink our criminal justice system, but there are some fiscal realities um, that we anticipate changing. And um, some of those are our budgets for our Department of Corrections, and can we continue to operate as many prisons as we currently have or not? Uh, and I've looked uh, <laughs> for a long time at you know, what drives our prison usage? What are the most people in prison for? And you cannot, we have been working for the last, you know, six years or so on trying to uh, reduce our prison population by tinkering around the edges with property and drug crimes, nonviolent crimes. Uh, and what we've managed to do is laudable. We've managed to flatline what was a growth trajectory for the last two and a half decades. But that's all we've done is we flatlined it. We have not reduced uh, in any meaningful way our prison population. And really, if we want to have a reduction conversation, we have to tackle uh, mandatory sentencing, Measure 11. Um, it's, it's the only way that we can, can make uh, inroads into reducing our prison population. So I think, you know, there's going to be both the people that have the appetite for reform in the system and recognize that a 
one-size-fits-all sentencing scheme really doesn't make sense uh, in the wake of, you know, what we know now. We know much more about the human brain, how that works for, you know, adolescents to t- all the way up to 25-year-olds. There are things that we should be taking into consideration when we are sentencing people as individuals that Measure 11 doesn't allow for. So there's going to be that side of the conversation, but then there's going to be the fiscal side that says, you know what, our reality is that our schools, our health systems, our foster care systems, they are all going to be impacted by, by tight budgets, and that includes our public safety system. And so we have to decide uh, where do we want those dollars allocated, and is incarcerating people without treatment, without working on the issues that got them there in the first place, but just holding them uh, in cages uh, until they you know, fulfill their time and then get released. Is that really the best approach to public safety, or would we, would we be better served uh, reallocating that money uh, to some of those other places? What do you think the timeline for it might be? When do you think we actually might be able to make those reforms? Uh, you know, I think that we will have a conversation about Measure 11 in, in the long session um, from conversations that, that I've been having uh, down in Salem with um, some of the Senate uh, leadership and, and you know, representatives. Uh, people are ready to, to have those. So I, I do think that we will see bills in, in the long session on, on Measure 11. Other priorities. I'm looking at a list of bills of some advocates who are working with the People of Colors, uh, People of Color Coalition, and the People of Colors, uh, People of Color Coalition's list. Excuse me, is the word I'm trying to look at, which word I'm trying to use. Uh, it includes banning chokeholds. It includes prohibiting use of lethal rounds during protests. Includes banning the police department from purchasing military hardware. Uh, requiring intervention when unlawful force is used. Uh, addressing medical needs of those under arrest. Requiring officers to have a legal basis for arrest. A long list here, revising the Oregon use of deadly force statute, changing how police records are released. What are some of the, uh, any of those priorities that prompt any further priorities? Um, you know, for me, the, the common theme is uh, we need to get back to serving the community um, and protecting the community and not, um, you know, essentially, it, it, to some being an occupying force uh, in the community. And so, you know, safety uh, of, of the people who live here, I think is paramount and then trust and legitimacy. So, you know, the things that I'd like to see that maybe prompt uh, that go even to the next step is uh, we're gonna make a bunch of changes. Let's make sure that we are um, tracking the data that we know what we're trying to achieve. We wanna achieve less use of force uh, well, let's make sure that we have good information about what the current use of force is, and then when we make these changes, how does it change? And that we can come back a year later and say, look, uh, we have reduced um, these types of, of incidents uh, in our community. So for me, it's like, look at the, let's make sure that we're doing these things thoughtfully, and they seem like very, I'm very supportive of, of a lot of those things, if not all of them. Uh, and let's make sure that um, we're tracking the data so that we can come back and say, look, we are a safer community. Because there are going to be people that say, uh, this made us less safe. You're always going to be able to find a case and say, well, see, because of that law, this is, this is the outcome that happened. Uh, and, and we need to make sure that we don't get pulled in by what essentially are, are outlier cases to make us drive uh, reactions. And for me, the best way to do that is let's, let's 
take care of the looking at the data, let's track it, and let's look at the whole picture in terms of the outcomes. And are we achieving the more safety that was our objective? Did the city go far enough in its police reforms? Uh, so far in terms of uh, the budget issues that have been put on the table? Yep. You know, uh, I think I'm looking forward to, to kind of getting in there. Uh, Commissioner Hardesty was, uh, sent me a couple text messages last night. Um, she's setting a table. I'm looking forward to kind of being briefed on those issues. I'm not a policing expert. I'm much more on the prosecutorial side of things. Um, so, you know, it's hard for me to, to answer with just the, the limited information that I have uh, about that. But I like, I mean, some of this is just kind of an extension of conversations that we have been having for a long time. And uh, I think in that way, um, you know, it's a great start. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, if it is far enough, or if there are more things that we can do uh, or not. But I need to get uh, caught up to speed on some of those things. How do you change the relationship? between the district attorney's office and the police department to to address systemic issues, including, and here's a question from a listener and a friend. I will acknowledge it is from Janice, who was my, uh, who was my mock trial partner at Grant High School, and she was brilliant. She presumably still is. How do you? I'll just read the question she wrote. How can you reform the DA's relationship with the police to address systemic issues? What are your thoughts around the modern system of inflated charges plus plea bargains rather than trials where the state has to prove its case? Yeah, so a bunch of issues in that question. Um, you know, changing the relationship uh, with police. You know, I think there are, and I've heard this from police officers, you know, they have a vested interest in um in legitimacy and being trusted by the community. It makes their job better and easier uh, when people, uh, you know, trust them, respect them, uh, want to work with them. And, you know, I think in that way, we need to re recognize that part of that legitimacy is, is giving power back uh, and also being held accountable to the same laws as everybody else. Uh, and so, you know, I think that the police has a lot of work to do um, in terms of, you know, their union contract and, and things that will be discussed. But with the district attorney's office, uh, you know, I think there needs to be accountability and that uh, we cannot, the district attorney's office cannot be complicit in, in protecting, um, you know, that kind of a culture where you can use force and, and maybe the only uh, uh, the outcome of, of a, an excessive use of force would be that, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't issue a case or we wouldn't bring it to grand jury. You know, I think we need to go farther than that. I think when we see excessive use of force, we got to be, you know, saying, hey, you violated somebody's rights and you need to be held to account. That's only good for everybody, for the entire system, for, for police officers doing the hard work. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of uh, police officers will get that. Um, some might not like a more accountable approach. Uh, but my hope is that, that we'll emerge as a stronger system and that we can have mutual respect and, and work together um, on those issues. On plea bargaining and sentencing, you know, I think looking at charges, uh, and I have to work with my deputies to say, look, it's my expectation that we're not just going to charge as many things as we possibly can so that we can dismiss a bunch of them and end up uh, extracting a plea agreement. Uh, so it's cultural uh, because you know you get police reports you get the what is alleged to have happened uh, and creative uh, deputy DAs can find 
lots of charges in there. Um, so, you know, I think part of that is going to be, it's going to be case by case evaluation, but it's also setting the expectation that our goal here is not to extract plea bargains. Uh, our goal here is to do justice and overcharging is not uh, necessarily in the pursuit of justice. Um, so I think it's, that is a cultural thing. Um, and then, you know, plea bargaining, that is part of our system. Uh, about 95% or so of cases end up getting negotiated in, in plea agreement. And, uh, you know, part of that is very necessary um, to just the functioning of the system. But, you know, I think not using our power uh, to leverage that, to coerce people into it. And that gets back to things like, you know, mandatory sentencing reform, uh, cash bail, people being held in jail before their trial and then giving an offer, hey, you can get out tomorrow if you agree to plea to this. Um, you know, things like that. Uh, thinking about what are the leverage points and, and how we can reduce those so that people don't feel coerced into taking deals um, for and admitting to crimes that they may not have uh, been culpable for. Another question for the listener. What black indigenous people of color authors are you reading? What law professors, scholars do you follow? What systems or habits will you have in place to check your own biases? Yeah. Uh, well, right now I'm rereading uh, a book called um, So You Want to Talk About Race by uh, Aloha Ijeoma. Um, I've looked at a bunch of other, uh, you know, I read all kinds of mainly criminal justice books, Michelle Alexander's uh, book, The New Jim Crow, was, uh, you know, has helped me a lot thinking about these issues. Um, Albert uh, Woodfox is a man who was held in solitary confinement for over 30 years in New Orleans, uh, in Angola. Uh, I have read his book and intend to uh, reread that as well. Um, and then, you know, it's also talking with local community leaders, black leaders in our community who have been doing things uh, working on these issues for years. I mean, Senator Frederick uh, is an amazing leader on these issues. He's been calling and sounding this alarm for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, Senator Aval Gordley and Margaret Carter and and uh, Matt, Pastor Matt Hennessy. You know, there are so many great leaders among us that that I also um, am very fortunate to to have their cell phone numbers and and be able to have conversations with them and, and go to them for advice. So. It's, it's a combination of, of, of both. You know, I'm, I'm doing the work um, and continue to do the work to educate myself. Uh, and then once I get into the DA's office, it's going to be incumbent on me to, to build a staff that, that will account for my blind spots as a white cisgender male uh, with all the privilege that comes with that uh, to make sure that I put people around me that are going to see things uh, from a different angle that I might miss. As well-intended as I am and as, as much as I try to educate myself, you know, I'm always learning and I'm always going to be, I'm always going to have blind spots. And so I need to put people around me that are going to help me uh, compensate for that as well. How do you evaluate whether to prosecute a protester who might, uh, you can challenge the word protester if you choose, but who's broken a window or done something that's a crime in the context of a protest? Yeah. You know, like all things uh, that I ran in the campaign, on, in the campaign, I want to evaluate that on a on a case by case basis. Uh, you know, you look at a person, you look at their criminal history, um, you look at what is driving uh, the criminal conduct, the activity, um, and I think now more than ever we need to have a moment to say, you know what, 
the people who are out there protesting are calling attention to the injustices of the criminal justice system. So bringing to bear the power of the criminal justice system on them for expressing their views that the criminal justice system is unjust is something that should give us pause. Uh, and I want to be very thoughtful about that. There have been district attorneys around this country um, that are saying, look, um, there are certain types of activity, uh, you know, First Amendment exercise activity um, that people are engaging in. And then if they end up getting arrested for curfew violations or or some of these charges like a disorderly conduct or things of that nature, you know, we're going to look at those and see, you know, is this really at this moment the best way to use our criminal justice system? Or should we listen and say, all right, uh, I'm hearing what the protesters are saying and I'm thinking about that and it's an expression of speech. Now, obviously with property damage, with um, victim, uh, you know, with person, uh, if you hurt somebody, you know, we have to think about uh, the other side of that, the victims, but I'm seeing amazing folks, uh, business owners in our community saying, you know, I stand with Black Lives Matter. I stand with the protest. Um, you know, even some who have had their storefronts, uh, you know, a window smash or something like that. So I think we have to take all of it into context uh, in the bigger moment, evaluate the cases, um, you know, individually, the people individually, and uh, come out with a just result and not just a I can prove this, I could charge you, I can convict you, but what is the just result to, to understand the gravity of this moment and that people are trying to tell us something right now, and are we really listening? We're talking to Mike Schmidt, District Attorney-elect of Multnomah County. Looks now likely to be the District Attorney of Multnomah County starting August 1st, five months ahead of schedule. Just a couple more minutes, and thank you so much for taking this time, Mike. In terms of... Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the pulpit, I don't know if I want to call it a bully pulpit, but in terms of the pulpit of the district attorney's office, your role as someone who can advocate for things. Oh, you know, only one of 36 district attorneys in the state, but one from by far the largest county with the largest office and certainly the one that interacts with its largest city and its largest police force. What is your role in terms of advocacy? Do you stay in your lane? Do you go around and talk to the legislature and lobby the legislature? Hey, here are the, here are the 10 tools that I need that will help me on reform. Previously, we, we heard from district attorneys, it would typically be in the Judiciary Committee in the Oregon legislature, would typically be ways that they could punish people more easily or more harshly. How do you use that role, that platform that you have to lobby potentially the city and the state or beyond? Yeah, for me, it's, it's crucial. And I really ran on doing just that. I do see it as an opportunity uh, to be a different voice. Um, you know, throughout the campaign, I talked about the Oregon District Attorneys Association, which is the statewide association of elected district attorneys, and how, you know, it's been very disappointing to me that consistently, just over my last seven years down in Salem, I've seen them come in time and time again against any kind of criminal justice reform bills and bills you know sometimes that quite frankly i think that they were just having a knee-jerk reaction to and not being thoughtful but you know maybe reacting to hey this is taking away some of my power some of my leverage some of my authority instead of thinking about it hey this is a system and and what are we really trying to accomplish here so i do see this as a big part of my role uh, to go down to the legislature and be, be a different voice and say, you know what, I'm approaching this thing differently. Um, the voters of Multnomah County have 
have resoundingly said it, over 76% of the, the voters, uh, we need change. And I think it's my job, and I ran on the fact that I'm going to go down there uh, and be that voice. And I've had, uh, I've already had a tremendous conversations both with, um, you know, our local, our state electeds, uh, and then also with our federal delegation, um, talking to them about some of the things that they have going on right now. So I think um, it is my job to say we can do this differently. And then it's my job to prove it, that we can actually create more public safety in this community by thinking about things differently, uh, by reallocating some of our resources, by uh, trying to get at what is driving the crime, as opposed to always thinking about, hey, how can I punish somebody more? I mean, Jefferson, you and I know we've been around, we see punishment doesn't always work. In fact, you take a traumatized person, which a lot of people who are in our criminal justice system are that. They're people who have trauma. And our system's response is, if we can just traumatize you a little bit more, maybe you'll stop doing it. Uh, and then when that doesn't work and they come back again, because 60 to 60% or so will end up recidivating, committing a new crime within three years, we say, well, I guess we didn't traumatize you quite enough. We need some more punishment. Let's pile it on. It wasn't the fact that the punishment wasn't working. It was that we got the dosage wrong, and we just need to turn it up a little bit more. Uh, and that's how our system has worked for, for decades, and I think it's time to, to break that and say, let's look at what is driving your involvement in the criminal justice system in the first place. How do we get to that? And I think we can do that uh, more efficiently. Uh, we can do it with uh, less use of resources and get much better outcomes. But it's going to be my job to prove that uh, and then to go to the legislature and say, look at these results. We can do this. And this is really a template and, and hopefully a blueprint for how uh, our state can start to rethink uh, how we do these things. How do you evaluate success of your office? Previously, traditionally, it's like conviction rate. What does a Mike Schmidt DA's office use to evaluate your progress and success? Yeah. You know, for me, it's public safety. I think um, any kind of emphasis on convictions is is misguided. Uh, it is our job not to get convictions. It's our job to do justice. Uh, I don't intend to keep track of my deputy uh, district attorney's win-loss records. I don't intend to keep track of who got the longest prison sentence, uh, which I have seen in some offices across the state. Um, you know, those are in my mind, uh, misguided outcome measures. Uh, I think we need to look at things like recidivism rates. Are we crafting plea agreements and sentences that are actually reducing somebody's likelihood to come back into our criminal justice system? If I could have uh, a way, and I, there are ways to measure uh, our recidivism rates, I want to see, can a district attorney's input uh, into uh, crafting those plea agreements actually um, bring some of those rates down. Um, so, you know, and then of course we always look at crime, uh, you know, reported crime in our community. And I think the district attorney has uh, less of an ability to, to um, you know, change that, but it is how you respond to it. Um, so there are some other uh, places up in Seattle, they're looking at um, other outcome measures that they can use to um, apply to district attorney's offices. I'm excited to be a part of that because I think we do, we have to stop from counting the, the widgets. How many convictions did this office get this year? How many cases did this office prosecute uh, this year? And, and turn it to how much public safety did we create this year? And I think one of the exciting things about the moment we're in 
is we're really having a conversation about what does public safety mean. Uh, and so I'm excited to participate and be a leader in how the district attorney's office can uh, be a part of that and, and thinking about how we're achieving public safety. Defund the police, a call that has been graffitied and written about that has been characterized and mischaracterized, that I will characterize as a push not only for reforms around the margins, but for transforming how resources are spent and transforming institutions fundamentally. What's your reaction? Yeah, I agree with your, I, I agree with that. I, I think that is what I see. You know, one of the, it was not called this, of course, um, but one of the earliest defund the police things that I've seen in our community was um, Commissioner Hardesty's uh, push with street roots to say, let's send out, um, you know, some mental health professionals to some of these nonviolent calls where it doesn't appear that there's any kind of a weapon involved uh, out in uh, in the Lentz area and say, hey, uh, we're not police officers. We're here to, to help you and get you services and not have to send police out. To me, that's like one of the, the earliest iterations we've seen in this community of, you know, what now is, I think, being called defund the police. But what I agree with your um, how you framed it, which is what how are we spending our resources uh, and in and do we need to keep spending it the way we've been doing it or can we spend those things on uh, spend resources on other approaches um, to getting public safety? Um, so, you know, just a quick example, the um, it sounds like the city council uh, has or, or is about to defund the, the, gun, the gun violence reduction team. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that I think community members have pushed for that is because they've seen, you know, stop rates and, and the disparity in the uh, police stop rates um, generated by that, that unit. Uh, and that doesn't mean, so defunding that unit, saying we're not going to allocate resources towards that unit anymore, that doesn't mean the problem of gun violence or shootings in our community goes away. So my hope is that we say, okay, that wasn't the approach that the community wants. Let's think about using those resources in another way that is still going to get at what was the problem we're trying to solve. And there are some innovative programs that have been happening around the country uh, to work on just that specific issue. Um, there are programs, and I'm, I want to say Baltimore, I could be wrong about that, but uh, in other places where, you know, in fact, they're, they're hooking people up with resources. Um, they, they know, communities know who the people are that are most likely to be involved in gun violence. Let's get them resources. And, and I've even heard of giving people a small monthly stipend, uh, almost a paycheck, if you will, uh, to stay out of crime, to stay out of gun violence. And they've seen major reductions in, uh, in shootings locally. So, you know, I think that's the conversation that we need to have is we still have the same goals. How do we create more public safety? How do we reduce gun violence in our community? But we're having a conversation now about how the resources we're spending at this up to this point, is that the best way to do it or should we reallocate those resources uh, to other ways? And, and the community is saying with defund the police uh, that they wanna see those resources allocated in different ways to, to achieve hopefully the same objectives. Mike Schmidt, elected district attorney, soon to be district attorney in Multnomah County. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning, man. Yeah, absolutely, Jefferson. Good to talk to you, man. Yeah, let's do it again soon.